We're in a series on the Ten Commandments right now. We're about halfway through. And I don't know if you preach on the Ten Commandments before. There's actually one of the first times this series ever got run was thousands of years ago in 2 Kings chapter 22 by a young king named King Josiah. King Josiah, he came into the kingship very, very young. I'm talking eight years old. And Israel had been in a super bad spot for years. King after king had come along and, and, and just done evil things, had depraved horrible things, giving kids to false gods sacrificially type of things, just the worst type of things you could think of. And so along comes King Josiah, and he's a good king. He, he loves God. He, he wants to reign and he wants to rule in a way that is honoring God. And part of that is to restore the temple. So he commissions workers and he gets construction workers. He says, build this place back up. Sweep the cobwebs out. Fix the windows. Shine the brass. Make it look beautiful again. So the workers are going about doing all this work and they come across a scroll. And as soon as they find this scroll, they start reading through it. They realize this is something the king is going to want to see. So they take it to King Josiah, and King Josiah has this pause and reset moment. He has this moment. The scripture tells us in 2 Kings 23, he, 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 gathers, he gathers everyone. He gathers the elders and the priests, people of Israel, and it makes a very point, it makes a very clear point to say he gathered the least to the greatest. King Josiah wanted everybody to get together. It says this, then the king read to them the entire book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. And the king swore allegiance back to God, pledged allegiance to, to reign and to rule in such a way that would honor God's word. In that book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 5, you find all ten commandments. And so here's young King Josiah trying to write course correct, trying to bring everything back into alignment with God's will, and he uses God's law, God's word, to do so. He gathers everyone, prophets to priests, to hired hands, to staff, to the least to the greatest, to simply sit and to listen, and then to begin to course correct, to reset, to pause, to use God's word to guide their lives. And it just seems really appropriate that in the beginning of this new year, we are in the series on the Ten Commandments, that we would use God's commandments to guide this year as we go about our normal lives. So far, we've looked at commandments one through five. We've looked at, is our relationship right with God? Is he our one and our God? We've looked at commandment number two, is our worship to that God pure? Are we worshiping other things, anything? Are we putting anything above God, or is it specifically solely given towards God? Commandment three, are we honoring God? Are we speaking of him that is with the respect and the honor and the reverence that is due his name? Command four, everybody say, you should know this one. Do you know what this one is? Go ahead. No, Sabbath. Come on. This is Amy and I's favorite one. Everybody say Sabbath for me. Thank you. You're such a pliable audience. I appreciate it. And so, Sabbath, have we respected this day of rest and rhythm of stopping and resting and worship in our lives? And finally, five, have we kept our families in right order? Have we honored our parents as Scripture calls us to? Are we a family unit? Are we a people? Are we a culture of honor? Or are we a culture of shame? And so that brings us right to commandment six. 
Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You must not murder. You guys excited to begin the year by talking about murder? <laughs> Let's pray and write God's word in his presence here. Father, thank you, God, that we can come together as a community of people and to pause with the sole focus of worshiping you. Many of us are in this room and connected where we never would have been except for our soul, love, and desire to please you. Thank you, God, for a church that's becoming more like a family. Thank you, God, for the bought-in vision of just seeking you. Would you guide this time as you guide our year in Jesus' name? Amen. Uh, to this season, this om- almost exactly a year ago, this marks the time where I had to go to the DMV. I had to go renew my license and not the time where I could just like do it over online. I had to actually go into the DMV, wait through the line. I think I had to leave about three times to get the right paperwork to bring back because I didn't have the right stuff. And I had to take the written test. Anybody feel confident that without studying you would just pass that first time without trying? I felt pretty confident too until I realized that I had waited to the very last minute, the very last day possible for me to pass that test. And so as I was going, I started thinking about it. What if I miss, what if I don't pass this test? I haven't passed it before. What if I don't pass it this time? And I have to go through the driving exam and my wife have to drive me to that driving exam. I have to do all of those things. If you want to hear a story about uh, missing your driving exam and DMV stuff, talk to Pastor Joe at the end of service. He would love to share that story. I won't do it publicly, but ask him about it later. And so when I get up to the line to go through all the things, they said, would you like a test booklet? I said, yes, give me that thing. Give it to me right now. And you know what? You can let him go in front of me. And so I'm sitting there. I'm going through the test booklet. And they finally call my name. And I get up there. And I'm taking the questions. I'm just like, this probably makes sense. Just go with your gut feeling. Close your eyes and pick one. But then once in a while, I would come across a question that was directly taken from the textbook I just read. And with a sense of relief, I would click it, knowing, whew, at least that question I passed. Do you know that feeling that I'm talking about? Where you're with confidence, you're like, whew, I passed that one. When it comes to commandment number six, sometimes maybe you're beginning to feel the sense of complacency and confidence. Like, okay, at some point I've messed up with commandments one through five. You know, I I didn't worship God correctly. I I dishonored my parents. I lacked on the Sabbath. But you know what? I haven't murdered anybody recently. So that's really good. I can get through this one. This is probably for the guy left or right of me, not for me. I'm good. I pass this flying colors. And as I was thinking about this, I want you to begin thinking about the sermon today from my point of view. Thou shall not murder. If you struggle with that, put your hand up and we'll pray for you. It feels like we could probably take care of this one. How much more can I say about this today is don't kill people. Just don't. Just stop. If you do that, just please knock it off. Okay? What else can I say about that today? (laughs) but as I began to think about it uh, just these four short words thou do not murder I think we actually have a graph maybe they're going to put up this commandment is one of two of the shortest commandments that we've been given 
compared to the paragraphs that we've been given up to this point, if you just take each commandment by word count to see how much of percentage of the pie it is, commandment number six is 1.2% of the Ten Commandments. Four words compared to the paragraph and sentences that we've dealt with up to this point. At first glance, it seems so straightforward, just do not murder. But as I sat and I thought about it, this is actually perhaps more prevalent, perhaps there's more of a need for this command in our culture today than we might think at first glance. As I sat and I started thinking about this, I, I thought about how, how just recently, this past October, over 1,200 people died in a terrorist attack in Israel on October 7th. How there's over 100 hostages still at large, they estimate. I thought about how that attack sparked conflict, which has elicited a wave of anti-Semitism across our country, with banners and people chanting, kill the Jews. I went through our county and tried to pull reports of just seeing what was the crime rates this last year, and the, the most recent one I could find was saying their annual report from the King County uh, Clerk's Office was that they felt with, dealt with 10 official murders and, fit and uh, prosecuted eight other ones in one year. On top of that, countless amounts of acts of violence that do not qualify as murder. I've talked to people in our church, journeymen that work in the trades, that work close to the city, policemen that work here in our city and in Chicago, and about how they would come out and find bullet holes and bullet casings in their van, how bad and how hard the season of law enforcement has been. As I sat with this text, I thought about Amy and I personally, how we live in this sleepy little farmer town that's kind of Stark's Hollow vibes, if that means anything to you. And it's this town that feels quaint and homey, and it feels like it's too innocent to experience stuff like this. But just this fall, a 17-year-old died from an altercation with another younger teenager, most likely over just uh, some drugs. And so perhaps when we slow down and actually begin to contemplate this commandment, we realize that I am not so insulated from murder and death and violence as I might think. The word used here is most often used in the Bible for intentional and purposeful killings. More often or not, those killings are motivated by revenge or hate. The word that they translate here is murder from the Old Testament, and it touches on many individual specific actions. It does not refer to war, it does not refer to acts of violence like that, but it refers to these tensional moments of individual harm towards other people, and it touches on a lot of issues. We may not get to all these today, but it touches on euthanasia, abortion, suicide, intentional violence, and acts of revenge afflicted from a person to another person. And I realize that this command affects me. It demands my attention because the sixth command, it pushes past even just blatant actions of violence and it delves deeper than that. If you were with us for um, Christmas Eve, we talked about 
this little character named Simeon, and he meets Jesus, and he begins to prophesy, an old man just waiting for his life. The last thing on his bucket list is to see the Messiah. And he sees Jesus come to the temple, and he begins just this expression of praise and adoration, and he begins to prophesy about what Jesus will do. And there's this one line I want to repeat to you. It says, Luke chapter 2, verse 35. As a result, speaking of Jesus, as a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And Jesus does exactly this to me. In regards to the sixth commandment, he does not let me live in false complacency, never actually committing a murder with my hands. He dives deeper into the issue to reveal and push and pull out the thoughts of my heart. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus says this in one of his most famous teachings ever. He says, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. To clarify, anger is an emotion, and anger in and of itself is not a sin. But the reason why you get angry or what you do with that anger, you are then responsible for. God himself gets angry. Paul talks about righteous anger in Ephesians 4. Jesus is famous for driving scam artists out of the temple and getting angry and turning tables over. So anger in itself is not wrong. But what Jesus is talking about here is a not unjustified, unrighteous, unholy anger. Anger that is driven by ill thoughts, malicious intent, bitterness and hatred. Something that's in us that wants to harm another person. Jesus teaches that angry feelings lead to angry words and angry actions. Jesus teaches that in our internal dialogue is just as important to God as what we actually do with our hands. Jesus does not say that anger will lead to murder. He equates it as the same. That an unrighteous, unholy, bitter Malevolent anger is just as evil as taking somebody's life. This teaching brings to us the reality that daydreaming of our boss, getting what they deserve, is wrong. He's pushing on this idea that just because you have a thought, it's not an innocent thought if it's wrong. That the beginning, the birthing of murder starts in our hearts. Some of us have felt the same things that you would feel in a situation where you take somebody's life. You just never had all the dominoes stacked up right to actually do something with it. It's easy to think, I will never, I will never murder. I will never take somebody's life. But then we get this verse from Jesus who pushes past that and talks about our intention, and all of a sudden I don't feel so complacent. All of a sudden I don't feel so insulated from this command. To more, it's like if you're in a crowded room and you hear your name, Josh, and then all of a sudden your attention is caught. To me, when I hear the sixth commandment and I read Jesus' teaching in chapter five, that's to me like me, Jesus saying, Josh, this is for you too. Because I don't know about you, but I know that I feel uncomfortable when I come across this text because I've punched a wall before 
because I was angry at a person. I've bruised my fist before because I was angry. I've taken a door and I've slammed it to make my feelings known towards a somebody. I've been mad at people and I've daydreamed of revenge towards them. I've harbored rage and anger and bitterness towards people and allow myself to feel those things instead of dealing with those things because it felt justified to me. Friends, I've sought counseling because we got a dog and that puppy found our new carpet and found our brown couch that we talked about and found our white couch and found our dice from our favorite board game. And I realized that there were levels and depth of anger in me that maybe a person didn't elicit, but it was there. It just took the right situation to pull it out of me. And all of a sudden I was doing things, saying things, reacting in ways. I would never treat my kids, never treat my wife, but I would treat a dog. And I realized that there was depths of anger in me that I had to deal with. Depths of anger in me that I had pushed down and tried to hide from and insulate myself from. And so when it comes to command six, you must not murder, I realize that this commandment is for me. An easy way to think about this is that you know how many, some murders are classified as a crime of passion. They were not premeditated on, they were not thought out, but in a moment when things happened, somebody feels a sudden impulse of emotion or bitterness or jealousy and they react in a way that ends with taking somebody's life. So it's very easy to sit back and say, I would never do that, but not realize that we have the seeds of murder inside of us. That the same things can be recognized in us. If you've ever watched... Um, a MMA fight or a boxing match, you'll notice that they'll have rounds. Well, they'll go back and forth, back and forth, and sometimes it can almost feel tedious. The crowd will start booing them, saying, do something, get off the sides, fight each other. But what the fighters are doing is they're testing each other for weaknesses. And then all of a sudden, the thing that we all look for when you do watch those kinds of events, you look for the place where the one fighter sees an opening, and then it's explosive power to just take out their opponent. And this is what anger does to us. There's a story very early on in the Bible that we're probably familiar with about Cain and Abel. Two brothers early on in the Bible story in Genesis. One day the brothers bring these sacrifices to God and, and Abel's sacrifice is pure and acceptable. And we don't know the details. We don't know what's wrong with Cain's sacrifice, but we know it's wrong. And God rejects it. And so we pick up in chapter 4, verse 6, God's speaking to Cain. He says, why are you so angry? Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. You must subdue it and be its master. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields while they were there in the field, Cain attacked his brother, Abel, and killed him. We're not, we don't know the inner workings of the situation. Was it just a genuine, Abel, let's go for a walk in the fields and just talk? Was it premeditated on, was it 
Abel innocently bringing up the sacrifices that they had just given to the Lord, and Cain, in a fit of passion and rage and anger, picked up a stone and murdered his brother. We don't know. But the thing that I want to bring clarity on to think about is when God speaks to Cain and he says, sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, and that is what happens when you harbor anger and bitterness and rage in your heart, is that it sits there in the recess of your heart, in the recess of your life, and you feed it little by little, thinking it's not going to do anything. It's not hurting anybody. I'll never say this to somebody. I won't treat them any differently, but I will not forgive them for what they've done. I will harbor this anger towards them. And what that anger is doing, just like a fighter, is looking for a moment, looking for a weakness where it can come out of your life and you'll do something you never meant to do. It'll do something that you never would have done when you're fully in control of yourself. But in the fit of emotion, it comes out and you do something that tremendously changes your life and you realize you're not the person that you want to be. If you've ever cursed somebody, if you've ever hit somebody or choked somebody or pushed somebody, if you've ever called somebody something or said something in an angry argument and that as soon as you did it, you wished you could bring it back. As soon as you did it, you wished you could stop. As soon as you did it, you say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Would you please, no, I'm sorry. This is anger crouching and hiding in our hearts, trying to take control of our lives. This is what Moses and God are speaking about in Exodus 20, chapter, verse 13. He's saying, you shall not murder, you shall not kill, you must not kill. And Jesus pushes farther than that. Even the intentions of your heart must be pure. Even your thoughts and how you speak towards others must be pure. We don't get a passing grade because we just haven't committed the actual acts of violence. If the violence and the evil is in our hearts, if the feelings that are not God-like feelings reside in us, we are not free of the sixth commandment. It's interesting to think of why people obey God. Some of us, and Laura, you can come out here in just a little bit. Some of us obey God because we fear God will punish us. This is the child that obeys you because they fear the punishment that will come. I won't cross the street because last time I crossed the street, mom and dad punished me so badly the marks are still there. I will not disobey mom and dad. Some of us obey God out of a desire. If I knock and I seek, then God will give me the things that I want. If I obey God and do this, then I will have a blessed life, a privileged life, a favored life. Some of us obey God of duty. I'm a Christian. This is what we're supposed to do. What would Jesus do? And when we obey God with that kind of motivation, we become the hypocrite, living legalistically by the word of the law. And some of us, though, Obey God out of love. Jesus, later in his ministry, is asked, what is the greatest commandment? Of the ten commandments and the 600 other plus commandments in the book of Deuteronomy and Exodus and Leviticus, which of these is the greatest? And Jesus goes and he makes and he recites old scripture and new scripture and puts it all together with this Jesus creed that we're so familiar with. Love God with everything you have. Love him with your heart. Love him with your soul. Love him with your mind. And the interesting thing about that is when you begin to love God with everything you have, the natural outcome is to what? Love your 
as yourself. And so when you get right with God, when you begin to have that right relationship with God, it's impossible for you to hate somebody and still love God. John talks about you can't say, I love God, but hate my brother, hate my sister, hate people around me. And so we do this out of a love for God. And I know that there's people in this church that have been severely hurt by other people. I know there's people in this church that there are things that have been done to you, unjustice, unrighteous acts in your life. It's nothing short of sin. It's just sin that's been administered towards you. And out of that pain, out of that anger, out of that frustration, you harbor these feelings of unforgiveness. How could I ever forgive that person? You don't know what they've done to me. How could I ever forgive that person? I trusted them with everything. I gave them my heart and they betrayed me. They broke that trust. They actually used it against me. How could I forgive that person? You don't know what they did to me growing up. You don't know how my mom or dad treated me. You don't know what that coworker did to use against me to get ahead at work. The reason that we work through these things is out of a love for God. You get closer to God, you get more involved with him and you realize that he is love and we become love and it will naturally begin to pour out into the relationships around you. Because Jesus gives us the remedy to all of this if you continue on to verse 23. He says, if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Pause your worship of God. Pause the sacrifices that you're bringing to God. Pause the things that you're trying to say, God, I'm here. God, I love you. And if you realize that you have a fence in your heart, realize that there's somebody that is mad towards you, realize that there is a human relationship that isn't how it should be. Pause, go and fix it, and then come back. Resolve the issue. We do what God told Cain to do. If you would just do the right thing, things will go well with you. We don't go to bed angry. We don't daydream of getting even a revenge. We give all of those things to God and allow him to make our accounts right. Much of the murder that is talked about in the Old Testament was revenge killings. And the New Testament tells us that revenge is of the Lord's. When an individual seeks justice, it's very different than a pervading authority seeking justice. This is why if there's a situation like this, a person's not responsible to go get revenge. The law is responsible to get revenge. We surrender our right to get the way that we want it to go. We surrender our right to see the things that we want to see happen. And we surrender it to God to say, God, I give you this situation. You know what's been done. You know my heart. You know the things involved. They don't deserve forgiveness. They don't deserve grace. But the part of fixing our relationships here a living a life that does not violate the sixth commandment is giving that outcome to God. 
Revenge is of the Lord. And this is what the awakening season is all about. It is opening up our hearts. It is evaluating our lives, knocking on every door and seeing what behind it. What secret sin is there that I've been holding on to? It's not a big deal. I'll deal with it later. It's not even a thing. It's opening the door and looking at that and addressing it. It's bringing God in and saying, take care of this. It is fixing our relationship with God, which will naturally begin to fix the relationship with the people around us. Are you guys doing okay? I heard one keep going, and that's enough for me. Okay. The rest of you should have been more vocal. There's this really interesting thing here that as I was studying, it's just too cool not to share with you. In Jesus, in chapter 5, when Jesus is talking about the consequences of giving yourself towards anger, he talks about being susceptible to the hellfire, to the fires of hell. Reading and studying on the commentaries, the word that is used there is the same word that's used in the Hebrew to talk about a specific valley where the Israelites would go and commit atrocious sins. It's the place that they would go and offer their children to false gods and sacrifice them in a way to receive the things that they wanted. There was a king that came along that found a scroll, read the law to the people, and they went on a mission to clear all of the unholy places out of Israel. He went and took down every idol place, every false idol. He broke things, burned them, and created a temple to worship God. And the valley that Jesus refers to in chapter 5 is the same valley that King Josiah came and desecrated so that all that it could be used for was a pit to throw carcasses and trash and waste. And the sinful practices that were practiced there came to a stop because of King Josiah writing his life and applying God's word to it. I don't know if that strikes you with the same power it did me, but it's incredible to think that here we are coming to that same pit that King Josiah rid the land with. And there's a realization in me that there are things in my heart that I need to pull out to address and to throw there and to leave there. There are things in my heart that I didn't think I was in violation of this sixth commandment. But realizing that Jesus has been pulling the deepest thoughts out of my heart and realizing there are areas that I need to address in my life. So that is the awakening season, friends. That is what we're doing. Pastor, next week we're going to be talking about these practices that will help you be able to begin to identify things in your life that you do not want there. Things that will begin to knock on the door and to open it and to see what's crouching there and to master that sin. To come into dominance over it, to let Jesus lead the way and to lead your life instead of letting those negative emotions lead your life. If you've never fasted before, this is a great season to try it. If you've never gone a season in your life where you have abstained from your phone, from TV, from media, from sweets, try it. Do it. If you've never come to a prayer night, come to the prayer night and worship. If you don't know how to pray, just show up and we will teach you by demonstrating what it looks like. This is the season where we evaluate and say, God, is there anything unholy, anything out of alignment 
with you? Would you bring it back into alignment with you and make it right? God, would this be a year of life? God, would this be a year that my life is aligned with the Ten Commandments? Would these principles become into my life and guide me? Like guide rails on a, on a mountain where they keep the car safe from going over the edge. Would you guide me in the path that I'm supposed to go? And that's what we're doing this awakening season. Prayer team, you can make your way forward quickly. And if there's no, there we go. If you're here today, guys, um, a lot of times we have a response right away, but really the response this season is to participate in the awakening. Some of the stuff I just talked about is bringing stuff up that can't be dealt with in a prayer. Some of it is you need counseling, you need a freedom session, you need to confess that sin to another brother or sister and receive the freedom from Jesus. Some of it is you need to just go through some of the practices to get wholeness and healing. Some of it, though, it will benefit you to just come forward for prayer today. And so the two responses today are, how will you and your family participate in the awakening season? And will you invite somebody in to the things that you're going through?